Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am very pleased indeed to welcome to the programme Dr. Simone Gold, who is a Doctor of Medicine and indeed a Doctor of Jurisprudence and a board-certified emergency physician practising in Los Angeles. She graduated from Chicago Medical School and then Stanford University Law School and completed her residency in emergency medicine at Stony Brook University Hospital in New York. York. Dr. Gold has worked in Washington, D.C. for the U.S. Surgeon General, and she now works as an emergency physician on the front lines, whether or not there is a pandemic. And her blog, which has the excellent title, Facts Lead, Opinions Follow, Five Minutes with a Doctor Lawyer, can be found over at thegoldopinion.com. Dr. Gold, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to speak with me on The Mind Renewed. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It is very good to be speaking with you because the uh, subject that we're going to be talking about today, which is the substance hydroxychloroquine, which people will have heard of, of course, uh, we're going to be talking about some of the issues surrounding that as well. This is something that I've been wanting to address properly for several weeks now because I think this is such an important subject. So I was trying to understand more about this and I came across a Fleckass Talks production where you yes. and another doctor, Dr. Wolgelenta, uh, were being interviewed and I was really impressed with what you had to say. So thank you very much indeed for coming on to explain some of this for us here today. Now, before we get on to any of this to do with hydroxychloroquine, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about your background, what you do. I mean, one of the questions that comes to mind immediately is how come you're not just a medical doctor? How come you're also a doctor of jurisprudence? What's the story to that? (laughs) Yes, that is the most important question. (laughs) I'm working as an emergency physician, but I think the way my mind works I always like to think of the bigger picture, and that led me to go to law school as well so I could understand policy and rules and regulations that affect us in our world. And the way I use it these days is I'm always balancing what's going on medically with the policy and the laws and the regulations that are affecting the practice of medicine. So I just am interested in both equally. I practice as a board-certified emergency physician Um, in America, of course, Los Angeles, mostly also Arizona. I tend to work in inner city kind of poor neighborhoods. I also work for the Indian health services serving the native American population. And it's very gratifying work to work as an emergency physician, but what's gone on in the last few months has caused me to go public. And I am grateful for the fact that I have a legal background as well, because people have heard me say that we may have a medical issue, but we certainly have a legal crisis. And I think I'm here speaking with you because I don't see it only as a physician. I see it also as an attorney. What is it like actually working as an emergency doctor under these pandemic conditions? I mean, I I would imagine that being a doctor is pretty stressful usually, but is it that much more stressful under these conditions? You know, it is extraordinarily stressful, but not in the way that you might think. Hmm. In terms of being busy and hard work, that for me isn't unusually stressful. That's what I signed up to do. And emergency doctors and emergency nurses, we're kind of used to the frenetic, tremendous pace that we have to work and do at a high level. Uh, What's been very stressful for me over the last few months and why I've gone public is the lack of ability to prescribe hydroxychloroquine. People ask me, how come I started speaking about this? And I have a very specific reason. That is that I was prohibited, essentially prohibited, from prescribing a drug that I know works and nothing like that has ever happened in my career. The way medicine is prescribed in our country, the FDA approves a medication. Once that medication is approved, a physician is allowed to prescribe it for any use that the physician sees fit. So you can prescribe it for things that it's on label for, that it's been approved for, but you're also allowed to prescribe it for things that it's off label for. So we use off-label frequently. About 21% of the time, doctors prescribe things off-label. So before this became a political subject, I already knew that hydroxychloroquine looked promising from the early studies in China and in France. Then it became a political hot potato here in America. All of a sudden, there was all this negative press about hydroxychloroquine, which I found very baffling and we'll get into in a few minutes. Hmm. But it never changed the fact that the drug works and it's, you know, We'll wait for the final data, but we have a lot of evidence so far that it works. 
So I thought it would be like every other drug I use in my career. With my knowledge and my scientific research, I would make the best decisions for my patients. Other doctors would do the same for their patients. So it was shocking to me to hear from my medical director at my hospital that I couldn't prescribe it. And I said, this is crazy. And he said, well, I don't think it works. I said, no problem. Then you shouldn't prescribe it. I said, but I think it does work. And I've done my own science and I'm a physician independent of you and I'm going to prescribe it. And it's been terrible ever since then. And that's actually why I started to speak up. So you are actually prohibited for using, presumably you could prescribe it for something like lupus, could you? But you couldn't prescribe it. Is it specifically for COVID-19 or could you, could you prescribe it for some other viral infection? So hydroxychloroquine was a completely anonymous drug until, you know, February of 2020, let's say. I mean, I knew about it, but the average person had never heard of it. It's traditionally used in one of two ways. One is prophylaxis or treatment for malaria. And the other is for certain kind of inflammatory conditions, lupus and rheumatoid arthritis being the main ones. So we can still prescribe it. It's still legal and fine for those situations. But the way they're restricting its use is twofold. One is the governors of each state, some of the states have sent out letters. For example, the state of California sent a letter out to all their physicians. I have a copy of it. I could email it to you. It's April 3rd. Mm -hmm. Sent to all the physicians. They have to be cautious about using it. It could be considered unprofessional conduct. When you use that phrase unprofessional conduct to a physician, that means you could get brought up before the medical board and it's a threat to your license. So that's a direct threat, even though they said it very carefully. And the second part is that the pharmacists have been empowered to question doctors as to their using it. And the pharmacists are empowered to say, no, I don't feel comfortable with it, which is lunacy. All right, so we're we're going to uh, we're going to discuss the substance in a little bit more detail. I just want to make this little disclaimer because I do think it's important. Um, it is a drug; it's not a food supplement. I'm saying this because last time we talked to Doctor Mobin Syed about food supplements, so this is not that. It is a drug; it's a prescription drug. It should only be taken under the supervision of a medical doctor for reasons that no doubt we will go on to discuss in a minute. And um, also, please be clear that nothing that we say in this program should be understood as medical advice. Dr. Gold is simply sharing her professional opinion. This is not medical advice. Okay, so having said that, um, when I spoke to Dr. Syed, he said that he had very positive results with it in treating patients. Now, you say that at the moment you are prohibited from, effectively prohibited from using it. Have you actually experienced yourself of using it effectively for COVID-19? Absolutely. I have been prohibited in the last approximately month or so Mm -hmm. for at least a few weeks. Before that, I was prescribing it for about a month and a half. Mm -hmm. And before that, we were not allowed to use it either. When I say not allowed, I'm an emergency physician, so I work under the auspices of a hospital. So the hospital was pushing back and back on me. Had I been in practice, I could have written the prescription, assuming it depends if the pharmacist would have filled it. But I had to be careful at my own hospital. That was the reason I was getting so much pushback. I personally prescribed it. I've seen it work very, very well. And this presumably was in the early stages of the illness, is it? These were patients. So the instances when I've prescribed it is when a patient comes to the emergency department and is sick, but not sick enough to require hospitalization. And I'd be discharging them. And that setting, I've used it a handful of times, maybe six times. Each of those times I followed up with the patients. Each of them got better in a very short time. And I mean, 12 hours, 16 hours, very short time. One was eight hours. Mm really incredible. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you, you have a small experience of using this, but there are colleagues that you talk to. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering whether you or your colleagues have ever experienced these in your patients, these dangerous heart arrhythmias that are in the news. It's very difficult for people like your listeners to know what to believe because you're hearing all the time it's so dangerous. So a couple of things. This drug is not dangerous. This drug is classified by the World Health Organization as a very safe drug and a drug that should always be immediately available across the world at all times. That's its category. It's on the list of essential drugs for the WHO. Number two, the drug prior to becoming politicized was so commonly used without any concern for heart problems, it was standard not to check an EKG, even on older patients with rheumatoid arthritis. That was the norm. If you went to a rheumatologist and you were an old person with rheumatoid arthritis, you didn't even get an EKG beforehand. Third, 
The Lancet, when it published its flawed study, which we'll get into, and it minimized how effective hydroxychloroquine can be, did not even check for the heart defect that they said is the danger, that everyone else says is the danger. The danger supposedly with hydroxychloroquine usage in this population is with the QT interval. The Lancet study didn't even check the patient's QT interval. And the last piece of data I'll share with your listeners is the American Heart Association, which is you know, a very large esteemed organization, in uh, April just published a finding that it's safe in the setting of, the title is called Effect of Chloroquine, Hydroxychloroquine, and Azithromycin on the QT Interval in Patients with COVID. And they concluded, I'm going to read you directly, this is the largest reported study to date of patients with COVID-19 that were treated with chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine with or without azithromycin. We did observe an increase in the QT interval of some of these patients. Despite this increase, very few patients had to have the medicine discontinued. More importantly, there were no cases of arrhythmia death in the entire population. It's a non-issue. But in the news, of course, it has been said that people went out and, and bought it and did overdose on it. So presumably, if you do it in an uncontrolled, self-dosing, overdosing kind of way, then presumably it would cause problems. It can prolong the QT interval, which can lead to a heart, a serious heart problem. But it won't happen if you take it under a doctor's direction and you also don't have underlying heart disease. So something else went on in the cases that they're reporting. Mm because the American Heart Association would be the premier authority on this subject, and they found no problem, no serious problem, I should say. Yeah. One thing I need to ask you, just because of the political climate, I'm, I'm assuming that your interest in hydroxychloroquine does in fact have nothing to do with party politics or Donald Trump? Zero. It is, this is completely apolitical to me, mm. and I'm, I'm so upset that a drug and medicine has become politicized. Mm. Yeah, I can hear that in your voice. It's devastated. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say I'm devastated on a personal level. Two days ago, you know, I'm an experienced doctor. I've been a doctor for 20 years. Two days ago, I was near tears for half of my shift because there were so many patients that needed hydroxychloroquine. And if they didn't live in America, they would have gotten it. And, and probably not in the UK. I understand it's difficult mm -hmm. in the UK too. Absolutely. But in Latin America, they would have gotten it. In Italy, they would have gotten it. In Saudi Arabia, they would have gotten it. In Panama, they would have gotten it. In China, they would have gotten it. Mm -hmm. Just not in America. All right. So this drug, um, it's been used a long time for all kinds of illnesses. Um, how does it work with respect to COVID-19? I mean, uh, Dr. Syed said, told us something about it acting as a zinc ionophore. He said a couple of other things about it as well. Could you run us through how it actually works with COVID-19? In the beginning of contracting COVID-19, the first thing the virus does is reproduce itself. It gets more and more and more of itself. Viral replication is the whole problem in the beginning of getting the disease, of getting the virus. So what hydroxychloroquine and zinc does together is it stops the viral replication. So it never really takes hold. And it does that very, very well. It did that in the test tubes and in the preliminary studies before it became politicized, it seemed to have promise in doing that. So its mechanism of action works to stop viral replication and we have a lot of evidence that that's exactly what it's doing so it works early but it really does need to be conjoined with zinc correct you're not using it properly if it's not joined with zinc correct okay which also leads us i want your listeners to realize if they ever see a study of hydroxychloroquine without zinc yeah. they should be very suspicious and throw that in the trash we will come on to some of those studies indeed <laughs> <laughs> absolutely Okay, is, is there something about it changing the pH value of the inside of a cell? Yes, mm. yes. But if I can defer those questions to sure. a pure scientist, I would prefer. <laughs> okay, uh-huh. Thank you. Um, okay, so we have this campaign against hydroxychloroquine, and you know this does seem rather odd to me, because we've even got somebody of the stature of Professor uh, Raoul in uh, France, who is being labelled by the mainstream media as a crank, and yet I understand he's very prominent. Until recently, he's been a very highly respected medical researcher. So, I mean, how is it that the medical establishment seems to have turned against this substance and is vilifying people who are proponents of it? I am blown away at what's going on. My father was a doctor. I'm a doctor. I've grown up with medicine all my life. I've never seen anything like this. 
I've seen my peers unable to think for themselves. Um, I, it's devastating to watch. Uh, Didier Raoul has a stellar reputation. There was no hint of any problem with him until this whole thing became politicized. Uh, you know, time is going to vindicate him. It's going to vindicate Dr. Zelenko, all the people, mm. myself as well, who are standing for hydroxychloroquine. Time is going to vindicate us. Um, some people seem to think that this is all to do with President Trump, that just because he came out to say, well, this is what I'm taking, that therefore a lot of people in the political landscape decided to go against hydroxychloroquine kind of to get at him. But um, that doesn't seem to me to be a sufficient explanation. And a lot of people are pointing to the power of the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, do you think that's a big part of what's going on? Yes. Well, I actually, of course, given this a lot of thought, um, mm. and I'll tell you what I think. So mm. first of all, I was paying attention to this issue before it became politicized, which is very helpful now because when I, I, I really had the perspective before it. So Donald Trump said he thought it would be useful on March 20th. So right up until March 20th, 2020, there was no controversy about this drug. I remember thinking, this is great, it's cheap, it's widely available, can be scaled easily, all the countries have it, it's on the who's list of essential meds. Fantastic. Then Trump says he thought it would be good. The next day, it was like, you know, an atomic explosion of hate towards hydroxychloroquine. I, I could process what I was seeing. This went on and on. However, it's gone on for so long and so aggressively, I don't think it's only hatred for Trump that's keeping it going. I think if that was the case, it kind of would have died out. The media would have gone on to another scandal. But it's been so aggressively marketed as a bad drug that I do think we need to look at other people who are benefiting from keeping such a myth going. The logical people who would be benefiting are competitors to hydroxychloroquine for treating COVID, right? All the new drugs coming out. Hydroxychloroquine yeah. makes no money. It's been out for 65 years. It's generic. I understand it's like 15 cents a pill. So you got to follow the money. And there are people who will benefit if you push hydroxychloroquine to the side. Hmm. Absolutely. That certainly makes sense. And, uh, you know, I'm going to add, and I'm not, I'm not a Bill Gates basher, but he, you know, he is saying about how life is not going to get back to normal unless we have the vaccine. And, you know, I just wonder how much money is going to be made out of a, a global vaccine. Um, but again, I'm not, I'm not anti-vax, but, you know, it's part of this. Who is, what, what industries are going to benefit from this? So, I mean, what would your view be? Um, let's suppose that doctors were now allowed to use hydroxychloroquine for this illness uh, all around the world. What do you think the impact would be of that on people's health and indeed on our economies? Oh my goodness. It's incalculable. You know, countries that use hydroxychloroquine liberally have much lower death rates. Costa Rica comes to mind. I think Bali, Italy, you can just get it if you ask for it. I think Costa Rica, it's free. I understand in Madagascar, they put it in the drink. <laughs> so the improvement in people's health would be enormous. A lot of the patients I see that I end up hospitalizing, I wouldn't actually hospitalize if I could give them hydroxychloroquine as an outpatient. I think that the economy would improve rapidly because people wouldn't be so afraid. A lot of why people are afraid is they think there's no treatment or cure. Mm. So that would all improve. That's why I'm saying it's incalculable, the effect. It's not just the health effect. It's the fear effect. The fear is what's keeping the world really locked down. And the fear would go away. You know, if you have a migraine condition, you have migraine headaches, but you know that you have migraine medicine in your pocket or at home, the fear goes away. You're like, okay, if I get a migraine, I'll take migraine medicine. But nobody has that feeling now, in America at least. Mm. So it's incalculable. Could I just ask you a question, which I will cut out if you're not happy with it. Um, but I would like to have the opportunity to ask you to respond to it if you have a response. Uh, I read a piece, stirring piece, by Dr. Merrill Nass. She published it only a few days ago. Are you familiar with Dr. Merrill Nass? I'm not. Okay. Anyway, she wrote, this is a quote from her. Um, she's talking about all these studies that we're going to talk about some of them in a, in a minute. Um, she notes how they all seem to be you know, demonizing hydroxychloroquine, how suspicious that is. And she says, quote, were these acts carefully orchestrated? You decide. Might these events have been planned to keep the pandemic going, to sell expensive drugs and vaccines to a captive population? 
Could these acts result in prolonged economic and social hardship, eventually transferring wealth from the middle class to the very rich? Are these evidence of a conspiracy? Close quote. Now, I know that the, the word conspiracy is always, you know, is a sort of red rag to a bull in many cases, but you know, we could just translate that. Are these, is this evidence of a concerted campaign to achieve something that should not be achieved? You know, how would you respond to that quote? I don't really comment on people's motivations mm. or why it's happening, but I want your listeners to notice how unusual it is for multiple sources and multiple entities to all be arriving at the same erroneous conclusion mm. that really goes against the natural order of things. Mm. So for me as a scientist, when I saw that the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA, which are the, probably the number one, two, and three journals in the world, all erroneously arrived at the same conclusion, I thought that was very peculiar. I mean, they're all supposed to be independent of each other. Yeah. They have independent boards. They have independent doctors. So it doesn't make sense that they're all independently arriving at the same erroneous conclusion. It goes against nature, and people can decide for themselves why. Mm, indeed. Okay, well, let's take a, a look at some of these then. So in a piece that you wrote about this, you do highlight these three. So people will know about the piece that was published in The Lancet that was then retracted and something about the rather shadowy business called Surgisphere behind that, the data company. Um, there's also one that you just mentioned there in the New England Journal of Medicine, but one that you write about a lot that appears in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Let's start with the one in The Lancet that was retracted. So this was called hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine with or without a macrolide for treatment of COVID-19, a multinational registry analysis. Um, how quickly did you become aware that there was something extremely fishy about this? I've been suspicious of all the hydroxychloroquine studies that are looking at how well it works late in the disease. To me, none of those studies were that critical, right? I'm not saying that they're unimportant. I like all studies that are advancing knowledge. But the mechanism of action of hydroxychloroquine and zinc is to work early. So I'm very suspicious when the studies are being done late in the course. Mm. So the first thing I noticed is it was being done in hospitalized patients, mm. which is by definition late in the course. So I noticed that right away. The other thing I noticed right away is it was a really, really large study. I forget the numbers, but I think there was 90,000 patients enrolled. It's, it was 96,032 people. 96,000. Mm. Yeah, so that's, that's just enormous. And my first thought was, how the heck did they get that done so fast? Mm. Because to do medical research, to gather it all, they have to get all the information. First of all, they have to set up the study, right? And then you have to enroll patients in the study. Then you have to write all the information down, input it into the system, then you have to take away all the patient identifying variables. Then you have to compile it into a you know, spreadsheet and papers and stuff. You then you have to write it up. Then you have to get it peer reviewed. Then you have to submit it to the journal. The journal has to vet it for accuracy. They have to send it back to you, make sure it's okay. And the whole thing was done like in five weeks. And I remember laughing. I'm like, well, that didn't happen. I mean, <laughs> of course, that could not possibly have happened. I mean, I mean, I'm not calling anyone. Well, Dr. <laughs> Sapan Desai, who was, who was interviewed, said that, you know, this is medicine and medicine should be based on data and science. So as far as he was concerned, this did happen. <laughs> There's, I, I, again, I, it just couldn't have happened. I, it just it technically couldn't have happened. I mean, I, I worked as a doctor for many years. I, I cannot conceive of a situation where this could have happened. Hmm. So that was my first thought. Later, it came out that there were some sites that actually said, we didn't even have that many patients. Like you, you had more numbers said attributed to our site than we even had patients. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, it speaks for itself. It, it, you know, it couldn't have happened. And then sites said it didn't yeah. happen. Yeah. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, you, you cannot track down the Surgisphere company. You know, you can, whoever's listening, you can go Google it. You can't, you know, there's no phone number. There's, you can't call them and they're gone. They're you know, disappear. Absolutely. As I said to you before the interview, I checked out their website a number of times a few weeks ago, but as of today, it doesn't exist. And indeed, I think you can't even find it archived at archive.org at the Wayback Machine. Right, it's done. So this is what what bothers me the most is, you know, there's studies that take place all the time, you know, separate from COVID. It goes through a certain process, right? And some studies are better than others. Some institutions are better than others. Some doctors and scientists are more honorable than others. The problem is when you're going to a world-class journal, we doctors and lay people are assuming that the world-class journals are doing the work of making sure the science was ethical, honorable, and with integrity because we really don't have the time and the energy and the knowledge to double-check that. So it's not even the scientist or surgisphere. 
I have a problem with the journals or the journal editors mm. that didn't vet the accuracy and integrity of what they accepted because they're the amplifier. They had the megaphone. Nobody was listening to Surgisphere. Mm. People were listening to the Lancet. Yes, and it's interesting to find that uh, there are some reported comments by Richard Horton, who is the chief editor of The Lancet, himself bemoaning the state of the influence of Big Pharma on medical publishing. Um, this came out when very recently, on the 23rd of May, a man called Philippe Douce de Blasi, who uh, himself is a doctor, he was, uh, he's a former French Minister for Health, and in fact, one time Under Secretary General of the United Nations, he was interviewed on French television, and um, he reported on some comments that were leaked during a closed-doors Chatham House meeting in London, where Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet, and the director, he didn't actually name the person, but the director of the New England Journal of Medicine expressed their deep concern about this pressure of pharmaceutical companies on their publications. And this is what Philippe Dusblasi reports that Richard Horton had said. So, quote, now we're not going to be able to basically, if this continues, publish any more clinical research data because the pharmaceutical companies are so financially powerful today and are able to use such methodologies as to have us accept papers which are apparently methodologically perfect, but which in reality manage to conclude what they want to conclude. And Dusblasi went on to say, and this is his, his words, you know, the, this is from the French. This is actually translation you know, from the YouTube video. So I don't know that it's perfectly accurate, but um, he went on to say, this is Dusblasi. I never thought that the boss of the Lancet could say that. And the boss of the New England Journal of Medicine too. He even said it was criminal. The word was used by them. That is, if if you will, when there is an outbreak like COVID, in reality, there are people, us, we see mortality. When you, you are a doctor or you're yourself, you see suffering. And there are people who see dollars. That's it. So it's funny because uh, you and I didn't have any reason to discuss this, but I had seen the same video. Mm. I watched it mm. half a dozen times. It was shocking to mm. watch this. So Dr. Juste de Blasé, who's a former French health minister, who is the Undersecretary General of the United Nations, who is also one of the finalist candidates for the director of WHO in 2017. As you know, that job has been filled by Tedros but it could have just as easily been him. Mm. This is a very esteemed individual who went public with saying that the pharmaceutical companies are putting so much pressure on the editors of the medical journals to publish a result that is consistent with what the pharmaceutical companies want to be published. This is shocking stuff. Mm. And so now we have study after study that's saying hydroxychloroquine doesn't work when its mechanism of action should suggest that it would work. Preliminary studies looked very promising. We have many, many physicians and many patients who are anecdotally speaking to its working. And we have the journal saying it's not working. And they're one by one retracting their terrible, terrible studies. Hmm. So we're having a situation, aren't we, where these journals, these esteemed journals, are being used as tools for an agenda other than people's health. That's quite, well, that is actually very frightening, isn't it? You know, one of the things I say is that if scientists don't hold the line at truth, integrity, and a scientific process, all hope for humanity is lost. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be your mother, could be your brother, could be your father, your son. Someday, all of us are going to pay the price of the scientific process being polluted. Yes. And indeed, and if we don't stand against this, it will only get worse. And it is such a powerful tool in the wrong hands. And we've seen this in the 20th century. If we not learned our lessons, we don't want that repeated. Um, okay. One of the other pieces was a piece in the New English, sorry, New England Journal of Medicine. Um, this was also retracted. And I think some of the authors were also some of the people involved with Surgisphere as well. Um, this one was retracted to, why did you mention this one in your piece? Yeah, the reason the New England Journal of Medicine study was retracted was the same reason that Lancet was retracted. When it came out, the methodology was so suspect, it was so rapid, it just didn't seem possible. The journals turned to the authors and said, we want to independently verify your data, which is a standard request. Hmm. The authors could not independently verify the data, and that's why both studies were retracted. The learning point for us as listeners, patients, 
is that you have two independent journals that were both using the same faulty database. That's really scary. People vie their whole careers to get published in these journals. I don't know why both the number one and number two journal in the world, both are using the same faulty studies, the same faulty groups. They had many other groups to choose from. For example, the uh, Indian Journal of Medical Research. They didn't use Surgisphere. They have their own scientists, their own studies. They published very good studies about hydroxychloroquine. How come that study wasn't, for example, published in The Lancet? Because The Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine are using the same flawed groups. It seems very fishy to me. And the third one, uh, which is falling in line again, uh, is this one published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So this has got a very long title. I think this is the one, isn't it? The effect, yeah. of, the effect of high versus low doses of chloroquine. So this is chloroquine yes. this time, yes. diphosphate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People can look it up. I'll have the link to that in the show notes. Um, you have a lot to say about this one. You have um, three main criticisms, and I believe this is one that the Brazilian government itself is looking into because it's so suspicious, so damaging. Yes. Unlike, okay, so the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine were built on databases that don't seem possible to have gathered and were impossible to verify. Those were retracted. The JAMA was a whole different set of problems, and there were multiple problems. One problem is any layperson can look at the study themselves on page seven of the study, and you can see what I would call pseudo-randomization. What that means is that the patient's were not kind of evenly placed into two different groups. So the study was ostensibly to test if a higher dose or a lower dose of chloroquine would work better in these patients. But when you looked at the groups, the high dose group and the low dose group were not equally situated. One group was much older, had more heart disease, had more diabetes, had lots more problems. They're all listed on page seven. The odds of them having all the bad stuff in one group didn't make sense. So that's why we call it pseudo-randomization. Another way to call it is cherry-picking. They cherry-pick patients. Mm. They put the sicker patients in one group, and they put the less sick patients in the other group. That's weird. That, by definition, should never have been accepted to JAMA just based on that. It was obvious. You can look at it yourself. It's actually quite stunning. One group is seven years older. That same group has 18% heart disease. The other group is seven years younger. It has 0% heart disease. It just goes on and on. It's crazy. That was only one of the problems. There were a couple more. If you'd like to hear about those. These were the people who were given the, the high dose. Yes. Of, and chloroquine we're talking about here yes. as well. And isn't it right that chloroquine is generally considered to be slightly more dangerous than hydroxychloroquine? Yes. So um, certain countries use chloroquine because it's cheaper. Hmm. Uh, hydroxychloroquine is safer. And so, for example, we don't use chloroquine really in America. I don't know about the UK. Probably you use hydroxychloroquine like we do. Hmm. Um, but in Brazil, chloroquine is the preferred drug. It's still considered quite safe. But the problem was the study, remember that rule I said that you shouldn't, you should be very suspicious of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine studies that are done late in the course. So that's the first thing that you should notice about this JAMA study. They're doing them in hospitalized patients. So first of all, that's suspicious. But even in that group, they took the chloroquine and they gave a lower dose and a higher dose. The higher dose that they gave was in the lethal range, lethal. The lethal dose of chloroquine was established 30 years ago in a New England Journal of Medicine study. The author's last name is Raoul, R-I-O-U, and it established the lethal dose to be five grams. Now, the patients in the high-dose group got 1.2 grams a day, which meant that by the fourth day, they had 4.8 grams, which is approaching lethality. That's a stunning amount to give. The drug sits in your body a long time. It's got what's called a long half-life. It's in your body for 30 to 60 days. If you're giving 4.8 grams by the end of the fourth day, and by the end of the 10th day, you're giving 12 grams, which is two and a half times lethal dose, that's just extraordinary. Now, not only does that violate the science that we know it was too high, we're not just speculating that it's lethal. So many patients died in the high-dose group that they actually halted the study early. They had to quit that study because all these people died. It's, it's actually quite stunning. And you also said there's no proof that this had been okayed by the JAMA Ethics yeah. Committee. Is that right? Yeah. So the third major problem with this study was there's no proof 
I don't think they did the ethics study, but I'm just saying it like that because I'm not there and I don't want mm. to say something I don't know for certain. Sure. But there's a certain process that all studies that involve human subjects have to go through a certain kind of ethics study, ethics board. And it's part of any journal, any study. This was done at the University of Sao Paulo and it was accepted by JAMA. So they have certain standards that they have to go through. To prove that they had an ethics board, you get a certain number in Brazil called CONEP, C-O-N-E-P. They did not have a CONEP number submitted with the original submission or in the final publicized version. And I have a screenshot of the CONEP database and there's no number listed. So it appears they didn't have any bioethics study oversight of the study. In addition to that just being bad, I think if they had done the proper ethics study, they would have discovered that they're giving super toxic lethal doses of a medicine. I don't think that ever would have passed muster with an ethics board. No. So these are three very, very big problems. In fact, these problems are so big that the government of Brazil decided to look into it and brought a civil investigation into the 27 scientists who are co-authors of this study. So when we were bringing all this to light, we approached JAMA and we asked JAMA to retract the study, but they didn't. They refused. So that was Dr. Bauschner, the editor-in-chief of JAMA, and he refused. So now the country of Brazil has actually opened up a criminal investigation. This is about a week ago or 10 days ago, where they're criminally investigating the scientists for giving lethal doses. Basically, it's your grandma in the hospital, really sick, and they're giving her twice the toxic lethal amount. And then she died. And then they published a study that the drug is what killed her, Mm. not the amount of the drug. Yes. It is quite incredible. It's very disturbing. Um, I mean, just, just, you say that this is not retracted. So if you go there at the moment to look at the study, it will just be as it was originally published. So, <laughs> so with the other ones, it has this great big yeah. notice saying this has been retracted. But at the moment, that, that still stands. Is that right? At the moment, it still stands. You know, we're still asking JAMA to withdraw the study, to retract it, because at this moment, if a scientist or a doctor is interested in finding out more on the subject and does a search and finds this article, they'll think that it's bad because they're looking at JAMA. Mm. So we need JAMA to retract the study right away. Mm. So this is very important from the point of view of physicians. But I mean, from the point of view of just the general public, it seems to me that even though things are retracted, the media still refers to those as if they still have force. And so unless you actually go and find out for yourself, and you may not have any reason to go and find out for yourself because your suspicions are not aroused, you still think that, yeah, okay, so it's being disproved. There's there's no benefit for this, or it's dangerous. I mean, I, I was only the other day, I was looking at a BBC article. The BBC itself had rather grudgingly said that the Lancet study had been retracted. I noticed it was The Guardian, really, that reported on it in a big way, and, and hats off to The Guardian for doing that. Uh, but the BBC, grudgingly, and then they just a couple of days ago had this article where they just mentioned that there were studies that showed that it was not effective, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, are you referring to the, the one that was retracted? Why are you not saying it was retracted, you know? So I, people, could, I think, could be forgiven for thinking, you know, none of these things get retracted. Right. You know, one of the harms of polluting the scientific process is that the general public stops believing in the usefulness of science because mm. they don't even know what to believe anymore. Yes. And I can't blame them. Mm. Absolutely. That is very disturbing in itself. Um, and I've, when I've posted things to my website, I've actually given that as one of the reasons why I'm bothered to do this, that uh, science itself is being debased, which is very worrying indeed. Um, I noticed that with this JAMA study, um, they have their conclusions here, um, where they say that uh, in no apparent benefit for Chloroquine was seen regarding lethality in our patients. Um, they then go on to say what should be done. For example, the, number one, they say randomized clinical trials evaluating its role as a prophylactic drug. And then they say also, number two, randomized clinical trials evaluating its efficacy against the progression of COVID-19 when administered to patients with mild or moderate diseases. And this is part of their conclusion. Will we really perhaps go on to do that? My question is, why didn't they do that first? Because surely (laughs) that would be the less dangerous and presumably there would be evidence to suggest that's where they should have gone first. You know, my my head is spinning from everything that's gone on the last few months. That's as honest as I can be. Mm. I read sentences like that, which of course I've read, and I think it's the scientist's guilty conscience that they're finally, you know, they're they're at least acknowledging the truth at the end. I don't give them a pass, though, because that's not what makes it into the media and into the public consciousness. What makes it into the media and the public consciousness is that this is a bad drug and you can't use it. And I don't give them a pass for assuaging their conscience by writing that at the end. 
And it's on the basis of studies like this and other studies, of course, that we're at, that we might discuss a couple if we have time. Uh, it was on the basis of this sort of thing that the World Health Organization ordered, I believe it was Indonesia, to stop using yes. either hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. Yes. And the yes. EU also heavily discouraged, was it, I don't know whether there's a yes. ban or just a heavy discouragement, which would probably amount to the same things in some way, of um, using this uh, except for in COVID-19 trials. And I think it was, is it France... I'm not sure. Is it Italy? Italy and Belgium. Italy and Belgium. France, Italy, Mm -hmm. and Belgium. The EU governments, France, Italy, and Belgium banned hydroxychloroquine. Mm. Um, The WHO chief Tedros suspended trials being held in hundreds of hospitals across the world. And they ordered nations, you know, such as Indonesia, which is an an enormous country, to stop using it. Mm. It was terrible. Absolutely. Okay. um, I would like your comments on a couple of these other trials, if you wouldn't mind. Um, We have... One called COPCOV. I don't know if you're familiar with that. This is being led by the University of Oxford's Mahidol Oxford Tropical Medicine Research Unit in Bangkok. Now, this is the gold standard. It's a, in terms of the structure of it, it's a double blind, randomized, placebo controlled trial. Um, so there we are. People will be looking to this. So this is to enroll 40,000 health workers around the globe to assess if chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine can prevent COVID-19 in healthcare workers. Obviously, that's something we want to achieve. Um, now, it was halted, I believe, due to what's become known as Lancet Gate, um, <laughs> business about uh, you know, <laughs> the retraction of the Lancet. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 it's good, isn't it? Um, okay, so that, that was halted, I believe, but I think it's now resumed as of June yes. 26. When I looked at that, first of all, I've checked since, when I look through the protocol for that, zinc is not included in that study. Now, that immediately strikes me as something that ought to be there, don't you think? A hundred percent. I found that as well. And I, you know, the, I try to be professional about this, but it, 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 it's infuriating. It's infuriating because the average person should not need to know details like this, right? The average person is going to hear that this drug doesn't work, mm. but it's not been a fair fight because you haven't set up the race properly. Mm. You know, you have to do it with zinc. So what are you doing publishing it or running studies without zinc? What, so you can have a headline that it doesn't work? Well, that's not an accurate headline. It does make one wonder, doesn't it? Because I I can't remember the guy's name, but one of the people in charge of this, they did a little video, and he said something along the lines of, you know, we're trying to find out what works. And I thought, okay, if you're trying to find out what works, then why wouldn't you include zinc if hydroxychloroquine is this zinc ionophore? I mean, it strikes me that it looks like you're just doing an academic study, otherwise. Or let's just find out what this particular substance does on its own. But that's not what you're trying to do in the video, he said. We're trying to look for possible treatments here. So if it is this ionophore that actually ushers zinc, which is antiviral, into the cell, thanks to hydroxychloroquine, I really do not understand why you're not including that unless you don't want it to be successful. I just don't get it. It's, you know, it, you know the, the video that we saw on YouTube from the French doctor who said that the pharmaceutical companies are determined to get a predetermined conclusion. And if you're going to study hydroxychloroquine without zinc, it seems to me that you're looking for a predetermined conclusion that it doesn't work. Um, I will just note in passing that this is partly funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, and of course, there's an interest in vaccines there. So I just wonder if there is a conflict of interest. Um, can I ask you about the recovery trial? So this is a UK trial looking into the possible benefits of various drugs as yes. treatments for COVID-19. And hydroxychloroquine is, is one. Again, that same foundation crops up in funding for this. Uh, there are others as well, behind that as well. Um, okay, so the hydroxychloroquine is a difficult word to say, isn't it? I'll say HCQ. Thankfully, we can use that <laughs> that initialism. HCQ arm of this study ended on the June the 4th, I believe. And lo and behold, we have concluded no benefit from this. And we have a press release here by professors Peter Horby and Martin Landray. I'll just quote what comes out from the press release. Quote, we have concluded that there is no beneficial effect of hydroxychloroquine in patients hospitalized with COVID-19. We've therefore decided to stop enrolling participants to the hydroxychloroquine arm of the recovery trial with immediate effect, dot, dot, dot. Uh, These data convincingly rule out any meaningful mortality benefit of hydroxychloroquine in patients hospitalized with COVID-19. 
just comment there. That's quite sweeping, a statement there. Um, mm-hmm. Convincingly rule out anybody in hospital suffering from COVID-19. Anyway, I'll, I'll ask you what you think about that in a minute. I'll go back to the quote here. Quote, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine have received a lot of attention and have been used very widely to treat COVID patients, despite the absence of any good evidence. Again, I'm going to come back to you about that one, because I'm wondering whether... You know, what does good evidence mean these days? Does it mean that any trial run locally is of no value? Or do we have to have these global placebo, double blind, you know, is that is, is it the gold standard or nothing else these days? Um, okay, so I'm carrying on with the quote here. The recovery trial has shown that hydroxychloroquine is not an effective treatment in patients hospitalized with COVID-19, although it is disappointing that this treatment has been shown to be ineffective. Here we go. It does allow us to focus care and research on more promising drugs. That's the thing. That's the thing that made my ears prick up, as it were. Because I thought, well, does that mean you've finished with it? You've done everything, have you? <laughs> so now we can push that aside. And yet, this was looking at hospitalized people. Um, and there's questions about the dosing. Have you looked at the dosing of this one? Yes, I have. Mm. So you've said a lot there. Yes, um, sorry. Good for you for really, really, no, really, for really understanding that because this is technical stuff and it's hard stuff. So again, rule number one, when did they study? What time in the disease course did they study? Well, they studied it late. Mm. So right away, I like to say, if you're going to ask me to do a study of when it snows in North America and you discover it doesn't snow in August, I'm not that impressed. I already knew that. <laughs> yes. So right. okay, they yeah. are studying late in the disease course. So right away, I'm 90% disinterested. Okay, I'll listen a little, but I'm mostly disinterested. Next thing I looked at was the dosage. They used almost as much medicine as they did in the Brazil study. They gave two and a half grams of hydroxychloroquine in the first 24 hours. If I'm technically correct, it was 25 hours but 2.4 grams in 25 hours, and then 800 milligrams daily thereafter, meant that by the end of the fourth day, that's 4.8 grams. Remember, in 1988, they established the lethal dose of chloroquine. It's not hydroxychloroquine, but it's very similar, okay, at five grams. My point is they're giving too much. The problem with giving too much is I don't know what conclusions you can draw at the end of it, because maybe you killed patients along the way, or maybe you harmed patients along the way, and you masked any possible benefit. We don't know. It's just not accurate information. I, I, you know, it's obvious. So it's not, it's not it's not being used at it's not being used when it's most beneficial. So if it's antiviral. Then you've got to stop this thing from replicating inside your body. By the time you're in hospital, it's already done a lot of damage. It's already in you um, and in large amounts. You said before, this, is, this isn't the right time to be doing that. So that's the first thing. So thank mm. you for, yeah, thank you for mm. clarifying. So there's two problems. You're giving it at the wrong time. And then when you're giving it, you're poisoning the person. Yeah, it does look like that. Two totally, totally independently, those are both fatal problems. No pun intended for sure. Mm. But you can't give a drug at the wrong time and expect it to work. And you can't give too much of a drug and expect it not to hurt you. Did you follow up on? They did There was um, a, a French news outlet called Paris Soir that was claiming that uh, I think they interviewed Professor Martin Landre, and he had said, and he supposedly he'd misspoke, but uh, he said that he'd been using dosing levels for hydroxyquinolines, which of course sounds like hydroxychloroquine, for something uh, like amoebic dysentery. But his colleague, Professor Corby, disputed that and said that Landry had actually meant chloroquine for amoebic hepatic (laughs) abscess, excuse me, Um, and that actually that was a suitable dose for this amoebic hepatic abscess. Uh, I know the interview you're referring to, Mm. but I I always go to the source. Mm. So I read the actual recovery study. You know, it's actually online. You can look at it yourself, the methodologies, the dosages and everything. Within their own study themselves, they admit that they're using double the amount you would use for treating malaria, which I find amazing because these are old sick people that are in the hospital. A lot of them are intubated, meaning they're in terrible respiratory distress. I find it amazing they're just admitting flat out that they're using twice the amount you'd use for malaria treatment. I, I just found that shocking. So it's right there in the recovery paper. They don't justify why they think that's the right amount. They just say that they think that's the right amount they should use, and that's why they're using it. 
I mean, I'm, forgive me if I'm wrong. I, I think I, I don't know whether it was this study or not, but I, I think something was said along the lines of, oh, well, we thought it was a good idea to use a heavy dose because these were very ill patients and we wanted to give them the best chance. That, yeah, that is correct. It was something like that. Yeah. It, it, but, but what bothered me as a scientist, not trying to be vague about it, they didn't justify why they thought that. I was waiting for the next couple of sentences to be, well, we're using twice the normal dose that we would give because of X, Y, or Z reason. Mm. There wasn't. It was just, well, we're using double the dose, and we think that's the reason we should use it. It was there was no reason at all. I didn't. I didn't. It's, it didn't make any sense to me as a scientist. Well, yeah. I mean, it strikes me as the logic of a child: the more you use, the better it'll be. Um, okay. Uh, the solidarity trial. So this is the WHO. Uh, so this was halted. This is the hydroxychloroquine arm halted due to safety concerns because of the Lancet Gate business. Uh, so now this is resumed. I think I'm not sure whether it is or not. You tell me. Is that resumed? Do you know? I think solidarity is resumed. I don't remember for <laughs> sure. I think it is. No, um, it either is or isn't. We'll leave it at that. Um, anyway, it was certainly halted for a bit, at least, and they're testing hydroxychloroquine and other things, remdesivir, other things. Um, now, I understand that India, which is using hydroxychloroquine uh, for health workers prophylactically, mm-hmm. they expressed concern about the dosing in these trials as well. And Singapore was also reluctant to join in with this. Um, we have large doses again. I don't want to read it out, but I mean, there is a, an article here from an Indian newspaper listing quite high doses again. Same pattern, isn't it? Yes, it's very disturbing. You know, what's interesting is that the amount that you need seems to be much lower. You know, there's a, a doctor named Dr. Zelenko. I don't know if you're familiar with him or if your listeners are. Yes, yes. So Dr. Zelenko, a long time ago, it has to be more than two months, maybe April, maybe March. But he came out with his protocol that he did from his patients. He's not a fancy scientific journal like the Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine. But because of the community he was living in, he ended up treating about 1,000 patients. So he came up with a protocol. And you know he's giving 200 milligrams twice a day for five days. That's two grams total, mm. right? Mm. And D.A. Raul's numbers, they're also much lower. And they're having a lot of effect. So I don't understand the rationale for giving such high doses. Mm. And especially when I have to emphasize, this drug is known to have a very long half-life. That means it sticks in your body for a long time, 30 days to 60 days if you're older and sick. That's a very long time. That means if you're taking the pill every day, every day, every day, it's building up, it's building up, it's building up. It's not being fleshed out of your system quickly. Yes, and it does seem very strange, isn't it, on the one hand to be saying, you know, be really careful with this and perhaps even avoid it because of these heart arrhythmias. And then on the other hand, say, well, we're going to use these extra doses. Well, there we go. Um, yes, for a lay person, it seems very odd. Uh, and for a doctor. <laughs> one, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, all right, one last one here. I don't know if this one has been quite so much in the media, but it has been. And I've noticed that it's been used as sort of covering the base here of all right, well, is it good for prophylaxis? Um, and of course, it's not good for that either, according to this study. So I'll just bang my microphone there. Um, so this is... Um, oh, the New England Journal of Medicine one? Yes, New yes, England Journal of Medicine, yeah. a randomized trial of hydroxychloroquine as a post-exposure prophylaxis for COVID-19, David Bulwer et al., uh, so, okay, it's gold standard again, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled. Um, now, the, the media has picked it up. And in this typical kind of way, this is just a headline here from the Business Insider. The first high-quality study of malaria pill hydroxychloroquine just found it doesn't help prevent coronavirus infections. So now is it no good if you're in hospital. It doesn't even prevent you from getting it or in you know, the early stages. Sort of thing. It's completely useless. That's the you know impression that's coming over here. Uh, we have the various methods here that they went through, which I'm, I must admit, when I first read it, I thought, I'm not sure how tight this study is. It seems to me, again, as a layperson, there's a lot of room for error, just in the way the, the data is being collected. Um, conclusions, after high risk uh, or moderate risk exposure to COVID-19, hydroxychloroquine did not prevent illness compatible with COVID-19 or confirmed infection when used as post-exposure prophylaxis within four days after exposure. So, you know, very much down on that. Um, do you have any uh, comments about that? I do have some comments by Myron S. Cohen writing in the same journal, but um, yeah. I'd be interested to know what you think about this particular study. Yeah, I thought there was a few problems with this. Um, one is there was a pretty long interval between the possible exposure and the onset of prophylaxis. 
it started with three days and then it went all the way up to four days. In other words, possibly exposed. And then three or four days later, you got the medicine. Well, that's a very long time. You know, if the point of the drug is to work to reduce viral replication, you want to get it quickly. So first of all, that I thought was one problem. Um, another problem, I guess a little less important, was they only had 75% of adherence in the hydroxychloroquine portion of the trial. But the third problem that I thought was huge was that um, they didn't confirm that these were COVID cases. So there was 113 cases that were considered symptomatic, but only 10% were positive for the COVID test. That meant that the ones that they said were failing were just based on signs and symptoms and not based on actually testing them. That seemed totally unreliable and ready for the trash heap. I don't understand how you can say something didn't work if they didn't test you for it. Okay, so this is so I'm just checking that you're consistent here with Myron Cohen, MD. So he, he is that what he said? Yeah, you know, he says the the trial methods did not allow consistent proof of exposure yeah. to SARS-CoV-2, and the specificity of participant reported COVID nineteen symptoms is low. So it's hard to be certain how many participants in the trial actually had COVID nineteen. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, but the thing that I picked up on, what, what he summarizes here, adherence to the interventions could not be monitored. Correct. And participants reported less than perfect adherence, more notably in the group receiving hydroxychloroquine. I must say, and that was the sense that I had is how controlled could this be? You've got to rely on people to to report accurately, to behave accurately. Yeah. So there were problems with this. Um, I think it's a really big, I think it's a really big problem that they said it didn't work when they didn't actually test them. In other words, they said it didn't work based on signs and symptoms. Well, that's okay in practice. That's actually perfectly valid in practice. But if you're going to publish in a journal that something didn't work, you need to get a test. And they didn't They didn't test most of them. They said they didn't have access to the kits. It just shouldn't have been published. That's all I'm saying. It just shouldn't have been published. Oh. You know? Do we know if there was zinc included in this, oh, by the way? Uh, I don't know the answer for certain. I don't think so. I thought it wasn't, but I don't know the answer for certain. Mm. I thought it was just hydroxychloroquine. Mm. Uh, but I'm not positive. I think you're right. Yeah, I'll double check that. I don't that. have it in front of me. No, no, no. I'll double check that and uh, add a note if I'm wrong about that. But I don't think it includes zinc yet again. Um, you know, at the same time, all of these studies were being published in America and I guess presumably the UK. I was very interested to read a study by the IJMR, which is the Indian Journal of Medical Research. I don't know if you've seen this one. This was maybe two weeks ago or so. And they did a very large case-controlled study of healthcare workers. So they were checking them for prophylaxis. Mm. And it turned out that the healthcare workers who took four or more maintenance doses of hydroxychloroquine, so just four times they took it, was associated with about 80% reduced odds of getting COVID. It was a very dramatic result. Hmm. I did a search, a Google search. I didn't see that reported in any American newspaper. Wow. Because it's not saying the right thing. <laughs> it's not, it's not yeah, towing and, the party and, line, and as that, it were. Yeah. And that's, and that's not right. So if your no. listeners want to, it's called healthcare workers the SARS COVID-2 infection in India. And it was about two weeks ago. Yes, I think I did come across that. I shall indeed put that in the notes as well. I shall draw attention to that particularly because it's all very well looking at all the negative stuff, but there is in fact positive research out there as well that is being largely ignored. Yes. Um, okay, so we've already said that we should indeed be worried by the fact that it very much looks as if medical science and patient care are being compromised Somebody is using this as a tool for gain. Obviously, we should be worried by this. So I'm asking what can be done about this. One of the things that is being done is this AAPS lawsuit against the FDA. So I was glad to see that, that is happening. I read through, actually, their case, um, which I thought was pretty convincing. Are you involved in that? I'm not involved in it. Um, I'm glad they're doing that. I think a lot more pressure has to be brought on the FDA. I also, for the last week or so, I've been thinking that Patients who've been harmed by COVID, especially in my litigious country of America, should consider banding together and bring a class action lawsuit against the governors for restricting physicians' ability to prescribe hydroxychloroquine. It's never happened before where the governor has threatened doctors' ability to prescribe an otherwise perfectly fine FDA-approved medication. And there's a lot of patients who've been harmed, and I think they ought to bring a class action lawsuit against the governors. So you're saying they are the people who could do this. Uh, but what about people who have, you know, have not been harmed by this yet? Because um, I always think to myself, you know, may I be harmed by the fact that I can't get hold of this stuff and my doctor cannot prescribe it for me? So you know, what can we do who are not yet touched by this? <laughs> I tell my friends that you should get your hands on hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine 
because when you need it, your doctor may not be able to get it for you. So just to get yourself that ahead of time, either from another country or my country in another state, uh, it's very bad. You know, the FDA lawsuit's important, but if you come down with COVID in the next month and there's a drug that can help and you can't get it, you know, it's going to be too difficult to fight once you're sick. Yeah. So I urge my friends to be prepared. Mm. Yes, and of course, this is one of the reasons why I was talking about those supplements. And uh, some of those supplements do have um, some properties that you know may help. And uh, I think one of them, actually, I think it's quercetin, yeah. may have a property in common with hydroxychloroquine, which may help transport zinc into cells. So one perhaps consider that kind of thing, perhaps ask one doctor about it. Um, okay, well, it's you know it's a very dire situation. I can tell from the way you're talking about this and the way that you talked about in the interview before that you are, you know, you're very distressed about this, that you want to be able to help. And of course, you're now in the situation where your, your hands are tied. That must be incredibly frustrating. You said that you've been in tears about this. Do you see that changing anytime soon? Or you, you're just going to have to soldier on like this, knowing that there is something you can use and you just cannot use it? You know, it's really awful. It's really awful. I've never in my career ever thought I'd be in a situation where I knowingly am not doing the right thing. Mm. It's a very heavy burden to bear as a human being. And I don't know what I'm going to do because it was so, it, it made me so unhappy to be in that situation. Um, there's a, you know, there are a lot of COVID cases. A lot of people will recover and do fine, but it's a little bit hard to predict, you know, the person in front of you, you know, if they're going to do well, they're not going to do well. So, I want to give them the medicine mm. and then to not be able to, and I really can't even discuss it with them because I'm not going to discuss something. I can't get them is, it's devastating for me personally. Yes. Well, you know, there are some people on your watch who will die. Yes. Who would not need to die. Yes. And for a few pennies, this stuff is cheap. Cheap. Well, sorry to end on a... <laughs> Such a sad note. No, a sad <laughs> note, but this is a sad subject. So it makes no sense to try and jolly things up at the end. Let's leave it like that. And let's hope that people do talk about this more and more, because often I say with these kinds of alternative media things, you know, this is how there's any chance of things changing. If we talk about these things, so that the consciousness changes um, and we don't... Not, you know, we're not always looking at what the mainstream messages are because, you know, I'm not saying mainstream messages are always wrong or anything crass like that, but there are times when they are desperately wrong and we can, we can see evidences of, of that happening. And I think this is one case of that. And in those cases, we need to gossip amongst ourselves and talk to other people so that people can, yeah. can actually see what is going on. And it's only when that happens that there's a chance of change. I want to share something practical. Mm. which is what I do every day as an ER physician. Mm. So I understand if you're not a physician, it's hard to figure out what the truth is. And I want to empower you to be able to figure this out a little bit on your own. Mm. If you're trying to decide if hydroxychloroquine is, is a good drug or not a good drug for you to take, and you're asking people or you're reading articles, if anybody says to you, this is not a safe drug, you right away know that that's not accurate. The reason you know that is this has been FDA approved for 65 years. Mm. We give it to pregnant women. We give it to breastfeeding women. We give it to elderly patients with rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. They take it for decades. There's never been a safety issue with this drug. Mm. Nobody claimed any safety issue until it became politicized. So I'm empowering you to say that you can argue back and forth if it's effective, right? The data is not all there yet. It seems promising. But the moment you hear somebody talk about it not being safe, you know that they've become politicized. And I need you to think for yourself and say, does that make sense to me that we're talking about a safety issue of a drug that's been used literally billions of times? Yes. And reject any assertion that it's not safe. I think that's excellent advice, but I'm going to say to you that one way in which I think the wool is being pulled over our eyes on this one is the claim or the implied claim that, oh, well, it's not safe for COVID-19. Now, I don't know whether from a medical point of view that has any reality to it. We are not seeing any evidence of that. The American Heart Association just published the most definitive answer to that question, and they found no serious arrhythmias and no death, no problem 
with the alleged heart problem, which is called QT interval prolongation. Mm. So the answer has been answered as effectively as it can be. And I would say that if a drug has been used for 65 years, literally billions of times, including in elderly patients for decades, we would have had some evidence of there being serious and substantial heart problems. Well, thank you ever so much indeed, Dr. Gold, for coming on and talking about this um, in great detail, actually. So I'm very grateful to you for that. Uh, it's been, you know, it's a fascinating conversation. It is a disturbing conversation, but enlightening, I think. And I think people will appreciate uh, you coming on to talk about it. I very much appreciate your time, you know, for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to do this for us. Um, I will link many of the things discussed here in the program notes. And I would just remind listeners to go to those, those program notes, um, because they are usually quite um, extensive on this show. Um, so if you haven't gone and visited those notes, then please do. A lot of those things will be linked uh, from today's conversation. Um, finally, I shall also direct people to your blog, um, which I had at the top of my notes here. Is it, is it the, the gold. gold Opinion? Is that? Yes, The Gold Opinion. And can you just tell people what they will find when, when they go there? Yes, I periodically post articles of medical legal policy interest. Mm. Uh, I don't post very often, so it's not going to overwhelm anybody. Mm. But they're definitely interesting reads that you won't read anywhere else. Mm. Excellent. Yes, thank you. Good. I enjoyed reading those posts as well. So yes, thegoldopinion.com. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Gold, for coming on the program. It's been a delight to speak to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Have a beautiful day. Night. Thank you. <laughs> yes, Thank you. indeed, indeed. Yeah, thanks for your time. Of course. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs>